0: Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and I'm excited to connect with my good buddy Paul Berger today in Dubai. Welcome to the
1: podcast, Paul. Hi, Marcus. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation here about A, your interesting career which you've been having. You're nearly three decades in the Middle East in Dubai as a an entrepreneur and of course a business operator there. And, of course, your direct involvement in motorsports and now, of course, in the arena group business, which is an integrated event solutions provider and the opportunities and challenges which come with this, of course, also linked to COVID. So we got a lot of interesting subjects to cover. And uh, let's get right, dive right in there, because, you know, as far as I know, you were really an advertising man, right? Coming out of the in the advertising world, growing up there in the late 80s, 90s. And in London, let's let's start there, and then how did you land in Dubai? Um, you know the first early parts there of your
1: career. Absolutely, Marcus. Yeah, thank you. It Makes me feel a lot a bit old thinking how long I've been here. But uh, I certainly had no intention of coming over to to Dubai in the Middle East for for more than three years in the beginning. And look, uh, as you say, yeah. nearly nearly three decades later. Yeah. I'm still here. So look yeah look I was uh, I was working in my 20s you know in London doing a mixture of things just trying to find find my way in life I guess I was uh, did a lot of work in advertising below the line in those days there was no digital or internet in those days we were focused on effectively direct marketing you know sales promotion yeah. What they used to refer to as you know below the line uh, in in the old sort of advertising spiel then and also in sales as well so i was uh, you know worked in publishing and really as i said just trying to find my feet and you know, as I approached, uh, you know, my my late twenties, I wanted to come out to the Middle East. I wanted to leave London, and I was very fortunate to pick up campaign one day and saw an advertisement for an account director in Dubai for BBDO Impact mm-hmm. BBDO, as they were, and and I was fortunate to be offered that job and that role. And uh, I packed my bags, uh, said goodbye to everybody, and and I landed, you know, solo in Dubai in nineteen ninety three. Working for BBDO as a a regional uh, account director in those days in the nineties, all the sort of the the advertising global uh, agency world were moving to Dubai. That was they were moving from Lebanon, from Beirut, from Cyprus, uh, and their headquarters were all being sort of set up in Dubai. Dubai became Mm. the advertising marketing capital, if you will, of of the Middle East. And I was very fortunate to be part of that with one of the leading agencies and um, worked uh, immediately on Pepsi Cola, which is the main BBDO account globally. And, and then Emirates airline was, was an account that we, uh, that we won. And I also worked a little bit on, on general motors. And I was effectively the account director responsible for all the sort of the non-TV side, the non-press side, the, we would did the exciting stuff. And uh, and I really enjoyed it. For, right. for, that was my first sort of two or three-year stint in Dubai. Yeah. And um, was it
0: mostly ba- focused on the Dubai market or was it already regionally, you know, running around into all the other sort of neighboring countries?
1: It was mainly Dubai. Uh, Dubai was it was growing massively in those days. Uh, Emirates Airline had, had only been launched three or four years earlier. You know, I think it was only flying to ten, ten destinations at that time, so it was very new. Mm. Um, London was the biggest, but yeah, it was all about uh, with Emirates getting. It wasn't so much of a hub then in those days. It was uh, it was generally local. I would call local, you know, Dubai marketing and advertising and all our promotions and things were directed to a sort of a local audience. But that's that's where it all kicked off, and that was my first. You know, foray into uh, into into the Middle East yeah. world of 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 advertising. Yeah, oh, right.
0: amazing. Wow. Now, somehow, wow. obviously, you know, in a couple of years down the road, here you started um, what well, you describe it as a leisure karting business, um, and, mm. you know, and that also linked, of course, to street races um, in the region. You know, Dubai, mm. Abu Dhabi, etc. You always had a thing for motorsports, or or how did that all start? What, what uh, where does the passion for that or or the the business then come into came into?
1: Well, not really. I'm I'm not. I wouldn't say I was a petrol head, but you know, after two or three years working in advertising, I really enjoyed I enjoyed my time in Dubai. I was enjoy but I wasn't. I wanted to get out of the advertising world. Um, I wanted to do something different. I didn't want to to leave Dubai. I was I was settled and. At that time in in London, uh, karting was a big thing, and in particular, you know, corporate karting, leisure karting. In London, uh, there was some some fantastic uh, karting tracks at Daytona and and Chelsea Harbour and and all these places, and they were very very successful. So, it wasn't because I was, as I said, a crazy crazy about motor racing, but I just wanted to set up my own business and do something very different and. And in the mid-90s, in the Middle East, there was no motorsport. There was, right. there was what I set up, which was leisure karting, and there was desert rallying, which is, we know, which Mohammed bin Salim, um, you know, the, the, uh, the Middle East rally champion, was leading, mm-hmm. and, and what he did in the desert, I was doing on the karting track. There were no motor racing facilities in Abu Dhabi, uh, Qatar, Bahrain, Dubai, there was nothing. Man. Um, and there was a huge gap, and and so I started off this leisure carting business in Dubai. I started off with the indoor. We then started organising these amazing twin engine uh, street races where we would, you know, we launched actually in 1996 at the very first Dubai Shopping Festival, and and to kick it off, I was uh, with Emirates. We made a movie, and we got the cast of uh, of Baywatch. Oh, right. uh, to fly over uh, from LA <laughs> to do a promotional video on Dubai and to do a promotional video on Emirates. And they participated, you know, in the twenty four hours. So we had um the guy from Fresh Prince of Bel Air, oh, uh we we had uh, Yasmin <laughs>
0: yeah uh
1: yeah, it was not wasn't who um Alfonso Ribeiro. Oh, right, okay. we we had uh Yasmin Bleeth uh from Baywatch and we just had a, we had uh yeah, just a host of uh, okay. of stars that came over that drove in the race. We had um, and this is twenty four hours karting, not. Uh, so basically, these are twin engine carts right, um, right. that go one hundred and twenty kilometers. You know, with your bum about you yeah. know an inch off the ground, off yeah. the asphalt, yeah. fly around the streets. They were, they were specially designed tracks on the streets of a city. Right. And uh, they were sort of two two and a half kilometer mo- uh, motor racing tracks. Yeah. We would have fifty fifty of these racing on the circuit at the same time. Wow. And non-stop, So it was, it was like a relay. So drivers would, if you were fit, you would drive for two hours. Then you come in to refuel, yeah. and then they would change drivers. So the, yeah, the top sure. teams had four or five drivers. And it was 24 hours all through the night. Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously the team won. that was the team that, that, that got the most number of laps. And, and it just took off in, in 96. This was on the streets of Dubai. Mm-hmm. Uh, having these celebrities over were hugely uh, beneficial. But it attracted uh, not just an expat audience, but also very much an, an Emirati. And and over the years uh, with the karting, the, I took these races to Oman. We took them to Bahrain, to Abu Dhabi, but they were mainly held in Dubai. And that's really where, you know, we were the home of motorsport, if you will. I mean, it's weird to think that a go-kart facility was effectively the home of motorsport in the Middle East. But, right. you know, when... There was there was nothing else, mm-hmm. and so we every year Auto Sport magazine would come out and put in a team. We had Formula One drivers, so we had Damon Hill, Pedro Lamy, all driving. Damon used to come out regularly. Uh, we had the pop stars from Take That that used to come out and participate. So they were very high-profile events. Mm-hmm. Uh, and bear in mind, we didn't have social media uh, yeah. in those days. Uh, they were all word of mouth and and extremely social, popular. Yeah. So I love it. Yeah, yeah I love it.
0: Well, that's a great so one. Now, was, it, so you you did this obviously several years and you know before you sort of I guess uh, the, the Dubai Autodome came into the picture mm. um, yes and I'm assuming a bit like almost the way you're describing it because of you know being really the only thing there is happening in motorsports I guess it got you into conversations in the larger motorsports industry right with Formula 1 and others because I remember when we first met and this is probably 20 years back as well now we mm. were talking about I think McLaren at that time where you know you were doing yeah. from work with these guys on, and and so was that then maybe you after a while you realize, hey, there is obviously big sponsors here in the Middle East which are, you know, looking for things, whether it's Emirates or others, um, and, and you know, putting your advertising hat back on, or or how did that kind of evolve further? You know, talk us through that a bit.
1: Yes. Look, I mean with with the karting, you know, we were the focus of anybody who used to come to Dubai in the motorsport world would come and see me and come and have a chat and and there was no secret at that time that there was a lot of desire to bring formula one to the middle east and and dubai was the obvious city um and the, you know I, I i remember you know once being asked to look after jackie stewart who came to see me and and jackie was out in dubai he just started stewart racing and i'll never forget we he was he was waiting to see uh, his highness to talk about formula one um, and I remember taking him to to the tennis event here. And, and I remember we were pulling up at the tennis event and, and his phone, his mobile phone went, which was a huge, huge brick in those days. We didn't have small phones just when mobile phones were coming out. And Jackie said, I've got to take this call. It's my son calling. We've just started testing and and I'll never forget. You know, it was the t- first testing session for Stewart Racing, and and he came off the phone and said, "Oh, we've just, you know, Jan Yang Magnuson was 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 driving in those days. You know, Jan Yan had a uh, you know uh, a crash, and uh, you know he was uh, he was just obviously some was informing. Mm. You know, it was amazing to be sort of." part of that and, and that was just the privilege i had by running this only motorsport facility so look the the ruling family in dubai obviously uh, not as passionate about cars as they are about horses at the time but they they had an audience and and actually they did announce that uh, they were going to bring formula one to dubai mm-hmm. uh, this was in the 90s and and there was a three there was a bid for that and and all that you know they basically went out and said look we're going to provide the land and we we want somebody to come in and bring formula 1 and ma- build the circuit and manage it and the likes of brands hatch and, and other circuits and, and consortiums got together to bid to bid for for bid for this project and uh, they used to come and talk to me about it because there was a you know what would be my opinion about it and and at the end of the day unfortunately when they actually worked out that actually it was going to you know, it needed more financial support from here and t- providing the land wasn't going to be sufficient to to build a track and bring Formula One. It needed a bit more support. You know, it fell apart. And, and you know, at that time, uh, I do know and it's a true story that uh, which was confirmed to me many years later, that at that time, uh, Jackie uh, was very uh, closely connected uh, with the Crown Prince of Bahrain, mm-hmm. um, and 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 met him on a you know on a, on a plane I think it was, and and we talked about Formula One, and and they basically you know agreed to, he would agree to support him to try and bring a race to Bahrain, and that's why the first ever Grand Prix was was hosted uh, you know in Bahrain, mm-hmm. and it was done with the permission really you know of Dubai. Dubai said they would not interfere, they would allow them to have this race and go ahead and would not compete, and and so what I did. And what leads on to the Dubai Autodrome is that, you know, having built up a strong racing karting business, there was a massive desire, you know, in Dubai for a club racing circuit, not a Formula One track, but a club racing track that that, that people could go from go-karts into saloon cars and single-seaters for the first time. And, and that's when I came up with the idea of the Dubai Autodrome and Business Park and, and uh I tried to secure and I initially went to the government for the land and and they made it very clear we're not interested in in motorsport and land and you know we 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 wanted Formula One it's not happening but I was just advised to go and try and do it you know with a developer and and at that time the CEO of a company here one of the biggest uh, probably developers in the UAE a company called Union Properties Mm -hmm. uh, the CEO used to spend a lot of time at the indoor karting uh, with his young kids at the time they used to enjoy coming to to race when they were youngsters they now turned out to be you know karting superstars over here but but th- when they were kids they started off on the indoor track and it was one saturday morning i went out to see uh, simon who was the ceo and i said look simon i've got a great idea and i think we should we we could do this together i said you know i, I want to build a motor racing track i want to run a motor racing track and i want to you know develop it here in dubai a club racing circuit and i think it's a great idea you know if you develop all the land around the racing track mm. and bring in the automotive industry and bring in the you know the testing facilities and etc for yeah. and we basically he loved the idea Uh, And to cut a long story short, we ended up doing this together. Uh, He convinced the board. We got the land. uh, Union properties were given the land by the Dubai government, develop uh, the autodrome, and that's when we broke ground. And, um, you know, I I had the track uh, designed by uh, a very old friend of mine called Clive Bowen. This was his first motor racing track. (laughs) Clive very well from Apex. Uh, And uh, Clive had never designed a motor racing track before. He'd worked – uh, at West Surrey Racing, he was a passionate, you know, single-seater guy. He loved cars. He was a petrol head. He always wanted to design a track, and I gave him the opportunity oh, to really? design, design the Dubai Autodrome. And, it, and when we, when we were commissioned to build it, I, I managed to keep him as the chief designer. And he, he worked for for Union Properties, and, we, and he, does, he's designed a, you know, the Autodrome was a world class track. Hmm. Sadly, it didn't quite go to plan for a number of reasons.
0: Tell us
1: and okay so first of all the club circuit became a formula one spec circuit so it went from being a 3.6 kilometer circuit to a five and a half kilometer circuit built to formula one specifications right. uh, the pit garages went from being just very basic garages for uh, club racing to garages that could host uh, a formula one mm. grand prix and at that time time it was funny and this is how i can, can confirm to you the story about bahrain is that uh, bernie called bernie called me when we were when we were building the autodrome we obviously got out into the press we, we were exhibiting at autosport international in birmingham and bernie called and he said paul why are you building a motor racing track in dubai without formula one it you're wasting your time you've got to bring formula one and i said to bernie i said absolutely understand, but, you know, we're a property developer, we're building a motor racing track, we can't afford to bring Formula One, but we're happy to, to convey this message to the government. And if they want to take you up, then that's fine, because we're building the facility and if they don't, that's it. And the chairman of Union Properties communicated with the government and said, look, we have this opportunity, we've been approached by Formula One, despite the Bahrain track being built, or almost finished at that time, would Dubai uh, be still interested in hosting F1? And the the message that came back said, no, uh, we've made a commitment to Bahrain, carry on, build your Dubai autodrome, but we're not interested to bring Formula One to Dubai. And that really confirmed for me that it was very much an understanding that Bahrain, that hadn't hosted any major sports event in the world before right. formula 1 really took the uh, took the lead on formula 1 and and dubai we just you know we were given permission to build the racing track but not worry about the actual grand prix so we built an F1 spec track, huge budget, uh, without Formula One. And that was a mistake. Mm. The second mistake was we never secured the uh, the free zone status that was very important to me to enable the automotive industry in the Middle East to move uh, their headquarter buildings mm. to the Dubai autodrome. So Dubai is very fortunate that all the global automotive manufacturers have their regional hqs in dubai not the dealers but their hqs so the likes of general motors and ford and porsche and audi they're all based in dubai it's where their regional execs sit and then they travel around and they had some of them had you know huge offices lots of people and but they were working out of different free zones from jebel ali to the airport free zone in different locations and we offered them the opportunity i went to see all of them before the autodrome and we and they were all very interested in, in signing up, taking some land and building their own facilities uh, around the autodrome. And unfortunately, because the free zone status did not come through, we were not able to convert that into actual you know plots being sold and, and, and buildings being erected. And, and therefore, you know, that was a big disappointment. And then thirdly, really, you know, as you know, Marcus, you know, when you're when you're hosting, you know, motorsports motorsports you know when you're bringing international racing there um it costs money and you know when you're a property developer you're there in the property business you're there you're expecting promoters to come in to bring these international races and 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 that was never forthcoming because there really isn't a grassroots motorsport industry as as such and there certainly weren't there in the in the early 2000s Mm. um so Interesting. Now, I built uh, the track. Yeah, I built, yeah. Exactly. Wait, how did you then hand okay, it sorry. over?
0: Because I do remember at one point in time, IMG, I think, was involved as well, right? Weren't there sort of one of the, uh, the kind of rent parts of it or some of the marketing side of it, or am I mixing it up?
1: I think – I don't recall IMG in, uh, being involved in those days, but what happened was we built it. We, uh, I opened it. had fat, amazing opening where I got the et, et, et and Senes family, uh, Vivian, his sister – to come over from brazil we did a massive charity auction um of some of it center stuff we had an amazing gala dinner uh, we had uh, some of the drivers were in bahrain about to race so we had one pablo montoya came over with his wife and as i said we we got the whole center family over and, and a lot of the motorsports world and it was a very successful uh, dinner and launch and that weekend we hosted it was called the World, it was a GT, World GT Championship, where they had the world touring cars, mm-hmm. they had the, the GTs, they had uh, a whole series of, it was a, it was a race card, it was organized by Stefan Rattel at SRA. It was a very successful weekend of racing to launch the autodrome, and that was it. And then I decided, you know, that it was time to move on. I, I wasn't going to be needed to run the circuit. We developed, uh, you know, we developed it, we'd handed it over to, we'd hired an operator uh, out of Silverstone we had two guys that used to run Silverstone that you, that came over to right. to run it and and then union properties decided that you know it was best that they were going in a different direction and it was the, it was at the time Marcus when Dubai was you know everything was the biggest and the best and the largest and uh, hmm. you know it was uh, we built a racing track and and that was that and and i decided that um it was time to go and do something on my own and capitalize on on my motorsport knowledge of the region from from the nineties and, and then building the Dubai autodrome and the contacts I had. And, and that led me into sports marketing global.
0: Yeah, correct. So um, uh-huh. now just a last, last one on this two, one quick one. Um, what is, what, what kind of races is uh, the motodrome uh, or autodrome now hosting at the moment? I mean, you know, we're now 15 years later, almost or 20 years later. Uh, you know, what is it sort of really what, uh, you know, what is currently being running there? Uh, what type of competitions you see?
1: well sadly it's a, sadly it's a little bit of a white elephant to be honest with you um there are no there are no races going on there um other than they they host once a year at the beginning of january uh an international 24-hour race which is huge it's massively successful uh, all the teams come from europe there are 70 80 cars on that track mm. it, it's an amazing spectacle of racing and it's hosted you know. Uh, in, in, it wasn't hosted this year, obviously, but the, it's a it's a hugely successful event that's been going, I think, now for at least 10 years, maybe longer. And that's it. Uh, apart from that, in, in, in the beginning of January, in the first half of January, there are no other international races on that track since the first weekend. They had one weekend. of it. Do you remember A1, mm-hmm. which yes, was awesome A1 run, ZP, yeah, That A1 was conce- that was conceived out of Dubai? Uh, they had a race here on the track and then the weekend that I did and then to my knowledge apart from these 24 hour races once a year there has been no international motorsport we've launched a sort of what well, we I say that they've launched a sort of some grassroots racing so there's been some radical championships some um single seater championships uh, some some saloon cars and even bikes, uh, motorbikes, called sort of uh, UAE uh, Motorbike uh, Championship, but not attended. And at the moment, you know, very quiet. The driving school up there is is really non-existent. Used to have Audi in there. They've pulled out. So I think they're looking for a manufacturer. Really not, I don't believe there's much activity. The success of the autodrome actually is the go-karting facility. So they built separately on the other side a, a fabulous outdoor circuit and indoor and that is busy Uh, and and ironically it's run by by people by the kids that used to work for me when i did the indoor karting in the 90s they've all sort of grown up they've come back and they're they're running all the karting up there and they do do 24-hour races and occasionally i go up there and and have a laugh and and walk around and they say when are you going to do another street race because it's a bit dull because the races are on the circuit it's the same circuit You know, there's no atmosphere and there's no celebrities and there's no. And but because Dubai being Dubai and when the Formula One drivers pass through, you know, they all go up to the to the autodrome, to the go-kart track, to the kart-drome. And, you know, you're constantly a stream of of current Formula One drivers. Lando Norris was there recently. Uh, Fernando Alonso spends a lot of time up there. You know, they all go and go kart. Um, up at uh, up at the Autodrome, and that is the successful part of the whole project. But the main track, sadly, is very under, very underutilized. Yeah, Oh
0: well, we'll leave that uh, for someone else to figure out because we still got a bunch mm. of other things we wanted to cover here. Um, but it's an interesting learning experience. Um, uh, I'll definitely take some notes because we were we we're looking at we were looking at some things related to uh, a racetrack here in the region as well and. Uh, I'll, I'll uh, even we'll need to compare them some more notes here now. But let's let's talk quickly a bit about sports marketing global, which uh, is really then the company you set up. Um, digging deeper Ooh. into motorsports, and just give us a couple of stories here of what it is what you were doing. Uh, was it very sponsorship focused or what was it really? What, what was sort of your main focus uh, during those years?
1: Yeah, look, I was very. I mean, I wanted to set up my own business. I, I wanted to come out. You know, working with Union Properties was a different experience for me. It was very much back in in the corporate world uh, and I wanted to set up my own business and I, and I wanted to use the, the the network um, uh, that I developed uh, over the last 10 years with the karting and and with the autodrome project. And I was very privileged in that to get to know, you know, a lot of the people in formula one and in particular built up some friendships with, with the likes of McLaren and with Williams and, and Ferrari and, um, and Jordan at the time. So I decided to, you know, I left. I said, I want to do something on my own. Um, I had some ideas and I I needed some backing. And I phoned, phoned an old friend of ours. Um, you remember, Marcus, an old friend of ours called Chris Akers Good. Um, uh, from Sports Resource Group. Phoned Chris in London. We got to know each other at that time. And uh, I said, Chris, I'm I'm going to set this business up. I've got a few ideas. I need £100,000. I think it was at the time to set it up. Uh, Would you be interested in coming in as a partner and making that a shareholder loan? And and literally the next day, £100,000 showed up in my bank account in Dubai. I was able to form the company, Sports Marketing Global, and and I was very lucky and able to to repay. I forgot about
0: that. Chris was part of it, Uh, but yeah, now you're refreshing my memories here.
1: (laughs) Chris, of course, at the time was managing Robert Kubica. You know, he'd been financing Robert. And uh Chris was doing a lot of things around, you know, he come out he'd come out of football, he was doing a lot of things around the edges of Formula One and, and supporting drivers. Um and Robert was one of his uh, his guys. And um he was buying up businesses in Formula One as well. Um anyway, he backed me, he said he absolutely believed in in what we could do together in the Middle East. He wasn't an active partner. Uh, he was really he 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 supported me when I asked him as a friend, mm. and I was very lucky to be able to repay Chris. You know, within I think it was immediate. We within a year we we did our first deal, um, uh-huh. and that first deal uh, was um it was a it was a strange one. It was a gap year in Formula One with McLaren between uh, their title sponsorship. They were with uh, the cigarette company West, mm-hmm. and they signed a deal with uh, with Vodafone to become the title sponsor uh a, a couple of years later there was a lot of urgency to get tobacco out of formula one and and west decided to to come off the car a year early before vodafone were going to go on so there was this gap year that was partially financed so there was a, an opportunity with mclaren to bring in a title sponsor but not at title sponsorship rates mm. because it was effectively funded by uh the the holding company for west right. and um and I took this as an opportunity. I, I I'd had a good, so have a very you, good relationship. Who did you bring in? I brought in Emirates. Emirates. The um, okay. so Emirates, the first time they ever went into into Formula One was uh, in two thousand and six on the McLaren car, and I built up a very strong relationship with the um, with the head of marketing for um, for McLaren, Ekram Sami is a, yep. a good friend, still is today, and and, and Ekram. Um, had decided sort of to change the look of the car and make it a two-tone car. It was a, basically it was a it was a silver and red car, which was mm. going to lead into Vodafone. And with Emirates colours being red, you know, Emirates was the perfect uh, perfect sponsor. They he was uh, very keen not to create what he used to describe as a sort of a supermarket of brands on the car with different colours. Yeah. So he he if you were a sponsor in those days, uh, the only red on the car was Emirates. And everything else was in black, mm. and 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 that was an interesting approach. Obviously, very attractive to Emirates when I presented it to them. So I I contacted uh, Ekram and I said, "Look, I have it." He 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 wanted to fill this position. He we spoke about Emirates, and I said, "Leave it with me." And uh, we produced some amazing visuals uh, together, uh, McLaren and I, and blew them up as as big as you possibly could. Uh, and then I went into uh, and 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 took them into Emirates, and I went right to the top. I went to see Tim Clark, who's the the CEO and still is today, uh, Sir Tim Clark now, and. And he looked at me and he said, um, you know, I've got no interest in Formula One. He said, it, for me, it's, it's like postage stamp uh, sponsorship. You know, we're much, I much prefer to be around, you know, the sides of a football pitch or something big and grand. And being having a little logo on a Formula Run car that is racing at 300 kilometers an hour and you're never going to see anything was did was not going to be of interest. But when I showed him these visuals you know, with the back of the car with Emirates on and the red down the sides and uh, how it stood out, mm. uh, very cleverly uh, designed, we convinced Emirates. And, and obviously the price was right and Ekram came out and we negotiated this and, and we took we took Emirates into Formula One for the 2006 oh. season. Right. It was a one-off year. It was a one-year thing because Vodafone were coming in, in from 2007. Mm. Um and it wasn't a particularly successful year that year with McLaren. We had a few podiums, but we didn't win any races, unfortunately. But it was the start of really of, of me working closely with McLaren and being a force, I guess, in the Middle East in terms of of being able to take you know take drivers, take you know sponsors and drivers and et cetera into that world. And it was um, yeah, it was a, it was a great year, uh, two thousand and six, and I I really I really enjoyed it actually. <clears throat> The very first race that year wasn't in Australia. It was, I think it was the Commonwealth Games. And so the very first race uh, was actually in Bahrain. uh, And the title sponsor of that race was Gulf Air. And James Hogan was running Gulf Air in those days. He subsequently moved to Etihad. And the titles, you know, the title sponsor of, uh, and their biggest competitor in the region being Emirates, was on the McLaren car. And Boutros in those days loved to have the Emirates stewardesses uh, in the paddock Mm. um, around the car. And we got a call. um, I remember that we got a call uh, on the practice day to say that uh, complaining from Gulf Air that uh, that our stewardesses, our Emirates stewardesses had to stay in the McLaren garage uh, and were not allowed to walk around the the circuit and the paddock as though they were sponsoring the race because actually it was a Gulf Air race uh, and Emirates territory was the McLaren. Aaron Garage and that was quite funny because it it was a deliberate ploy I think you know just to uh, to wind them up but yeah that was our start. And
0: Inwards obviously is still in F1 or or obviously then upgraded right
1: several years later and now become a big global partner. So they came out in 2007 and and really you know they had a great year great deal they they weren't going to be the title sponsor with McLaren after that and then the prices obviously changed so Ten years later, must have been at least ten years later. They decided to come back into into the world of Formula One, but not on a team uh, as the official airline yeah, and exactly. and be a sponsor of uh, on the circuits. And, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, it's and they've about done that. Two thousand and thirteen.
0: Well. I was just looking it up here actually. Two thirteen, and yeah. they just renewed to two twenty two. So again, obviously, maybe yeah. your your early entry or, or or giving him a first taste. Uh, it looks like, uh, you know, bore some fruits here uh, and it's still in there, which yeah. is great. And, of course, you know, now yeah. you have Abu Dhabi, a race, and there's Abu Dhabi airline is in there as well. So, clearly, the, the airlines yes. in the region have been uh, very heavy supporters of, of
1: Formula 1 in many ways. Formula 1, indeed. Yeah, that was the first 2006. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There was a gap and then they've come back in again in a big way and mm. and successfully. Right. Successful.
0: Interesting. Now, uh, any anything else you wanted to sort of uh, – Maybe any highlight on, on, on what you did there with sports marketing global or you want to move on to the then how you got into the world now of arena group? Because A, that's uh, really where you spend your last now almost 10, uh, ten, eleven years um there, and I, and I definitely want to touch on that unless there's some you know great story we're missing maybe there in the sports marketing world. Um, you know, because again, t- talk me through after you know, you're obviously running um sports marketing global and uh, and then I think you see an opportunity there with Harlequin Marquis, where I believe you mm. you bought something or or brought in yeah. Arena Group together, and so you know and that's a very again very different business than you were in at that time. So uh, where does that coming from, and and did you just see the opportunity, or how did that all come together?
1: Yeah, well it was uh, look I was very happy with sports marketing and and when I got the call from Harlequin it was uh, it was a surprise but I, there is a story that links the, the two actually and mm. and actually co- sort of concludes my not my career but certainly what I was doing at at sports marketing and and it was in um 2007 when I ironically was invited to Uh, The first Abu Dhabi uh, Golf Championships, which is an event, the arena we have been building, you know, since then Mm -hmm. Um, or since 2008, I should say. But in 2007, I was a guest there in in the marquees, in the structures at the first Abu Dhabi Golf Championships. When I was introduced to uh, somebody very senior in the Abu Dhabi government, his excellency, You know, Khaldun Mubarak, who is is more well known now as the chairman of Manchester City, but very much representing, you know, Abu Dhabi Inc. And I met Khaldun, didn't think anything of it at the Abu Dhabi Golf Championships, which has become a big part of my new life. And the next day I received a telephone call from his excellency's office to say he would like to have a meeting with me. And when I come down to Abu Dhabi and I drove down and I walked in and there was a lawyer and himself there. And he said, I'm about to tell you something very confidential, Paul. I'd like you to sign this NDA and then we can talk. So I signed the NDA. I was fascinating, fascinating <laughs> to hear what he had to say. And, uh, when the lawyer left, he turned around and he said, um, I've been told it's a pleasure meeting you yesterday, but I've been told that you are the man when it comes to formula one, that, you know, everything about formula one. He said, I know nothing about formula one. Um, but I want to bring a formula one race to Abu Dhabi. All right. And, uh, and I was shocked. I said, "Oh." he said, and, uh, by the way, I'm not just telling you that I want to bring a Formula 1 race. I have already met uh, with Bernie uh, mm. several times. I was introduced. So at that time, uh, Mubar, the Abu Dhabi government, had bought uh, a stake uh, in Ferrari. Ferrari. The company, yeah, not the, not the Formula true. 1 but the whole company had 10% <laughs> or something. Mm. Um, and uh, Luca de Montezemolo, the then chairman of Ferrari, had introduced Caldoun to, to to Bernie and it basically set that initial discussion up. Yeah. And Khaldun had called me down because it was now at the stage where he needed somebody to go in and negotiate uh, the contract to bring it to Well, at to, least he hadn't Africa.
0: signed it yet. That's a start. Normally, they always sign it, and then they come and go, yeah. can yeah. you help me No, now no signature.
1: This out? <laughs> he said, I need you with the lawyers to go to London and negotiate the contract and the rights for uh, us. Uh, exactly. You know, I agreed everything. We're going to do it. We've got the permission. Bahrain had said, yes, it can come to do uh, Abu Dhabi. Aldar were building the track on Yaz Island, and he asked me to go in and negotiate really the commercial side, the commercial rights. I'm not a lawyer, and I work with two of his lawyers, and we spent the whole of that year, the rest of that year, going back and forth to London, where we uh, eventually signed a seven year deal to bring Formula One to Abu Dhabi from 2009, and the rest is history. So I was very happy. Having done that, I was super happy. I received a telephone call from my, my brother-in-law at the time, my brother-in-law who had set up a company called Harlequin in 1999 as a very upmarket English marquee company, which huge gap here. And he wanted to sell his business and and he wanted help. And he called me and I said, I'm really not interested. I'm having a great time with my sports marketing business. I've just been working with Ferrari. I've just done the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And he said, please have a look at my business. And I had a look at it. I went to London to meet up with Arena, who had, interestingly, the year before, had expressed an interest to buy the business, which he turned down. And I said, look, if I take over this business, would you come in with me? Um, Are you still interested uh, to come back to the table? And they said, yes, it will be on different terms. And I went back to my brother-in-law, Charlie, and I said, look, I'll give you some advice. You, you're selling this business too early. You need to, to wait a couple of years. we just come through you know, the collapse of Lehman and the world, the big recession, and it was a bad time. And uh, he said, no, I've made up my mind. I'm going to South Africa. I need you to take the business over. And that's what happened. And then I thought, I can still do my sports marketing, but I love the challenge of this business because Arena, and has been, as you know, been going for hundreds of years, is very well known globally now uh, for designing and delivering uh, iconic sports events mm. around the world, you know, from Wimbledon. We've been building Wimbledon for 30 years, the Ryder Cup for the same period, the Open, the Grand National, through to the Super Bowl in the States, um, the PGA Tours, uh, and then obviously through uh, to what we've, uh, what we've been building and designing and delivering over the Middle East and Asia. And I saw the opportunity with the arena, my background in sports, the opportunity to uh, take Harlequin into a new world of sports, uh, with the backing of Arena and using my contacts, and, and the first race we, we built was obviously the 2009 Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. It was a huge opportunity, and I we did the deal, and I I, I ended up buying the company with Arena, and we bought half, and we had an earnout with the founders. We at the time the business had you know 30 or 40 people in dubai it was just dubai we had no presence anywhere else in the middle east or asia right. it was the first acquisition of arena outside of the uk up until 2009 it was just an english company hmm. and yeah i started my my journey of the last 12 years as, as i was reminded this morning on linkedin uh, yeah it's, uh, it's Harry, amazing it's i mean and like i said i
0: mean you know I, I did a little bit of homework obviously you know checking out the website and the company was founded at least according to what I read there in seventeen sixty one which makes it two hundred and sixty years now i didn 't even know there were really? events at that time um, or, right. or <laughs> something uh, which would require this sort of service, but you know i 'm sure as usually has evolved over the years but um, and like you rightly said, you know initially or at least over the last several years, um, I would argue it 's really grown by acquisition right um, and part of that of course, was also the public listing which uh, yes. if I got that right, somewhere about 2017, is that about correct? Right. Uh, when you guys right. listed yes. it on Ames, right? Yes. And obviously you, raised, you know a bunch of money, 60 million pounds, I guess. Um, you know, and then it sort of hit 100 million pound revenue in 2018. And uh, so, you know, that's a, that's a proper business. Um, but, yes. Uh, yes. you know, and again, you obviously played that sort of, I guess, Middle Eastern slash Asia Pacific role, right? Because um, I remember you coming into KL yes. in, in and that's, Asia. Yeah, I do.
1: Yeah. Yes, yes. We do. We have a big presence in Asia. Absolutely right. And that's where we kind of reconnected again, because, um, you know, I was I, I took we, we then obviously changed the Harlequin name, that brand to Arena. We grew. We, we set up in Abu Dhabi. We we then made our first acquisition uh, in Asia, in, in Malaysia, in Kuala Lumpur with Asia Tense uh, on the back of winning some major golf tournaments over there. And now, you know, we are you know, we were pre-COVID, you know, uh, close to to 300 staff you know, in the Middle East uh, and Asia, 350 If you, you know, in the Middle East and Asia, we with offices from Hong Kong to Seoul to Malaysia. Uh, we have a, a joint venture in Japan because we're doing a lot of work on the Olympic Games. Mm. Uh, and then back into the Middle East with Saudi now sort of opening up massively over the last few years. So, we, we, and we have a presence there. So, yeah, the company, when I took over the company and we, as the, we we were, the, we were three divisions. We were Arena Americas, Arena UK and Europe, and Arena Middle East and Asia. And we, up until 2019, the Middle East and Asia were always the smallest in the group. We were the small. We, were, we, we could never get ahead of the US. We, the UK was dominant. And in 2019, we, on the back of, a, of, of some huge projects in Saudi Arabia, we became the biggest division and the most profitable division in the Arena group in 2019. And delivering some fantastic work, and and that was just before COVID. Yeah, so
0: and all hell broke loose. And, and well, I definitely want yeah, to touch on that, that a little bit uh, because again, uh, but before that, I, I'm not sure yet we've done a, a good job yet to even explain all the things Arena does. Um, you know, and again, I always assume there's always people who might not know you guys that well. Um, you know on the website it says it's an integrated event solutions provider um, but that mm, means cool. there's many things to this right and you know and as you earlier mentioned already from Wimbledon to tennis and golf and, and, and other uh, major events Olympics etc you you guys come in there and if I would define this in my, ter- my words and you add please to it um, you really are in the sort of temporary structure business right you provide services from seating to uh, full services um, you know if you go to a golf event I guess you have the big marquees mm. there where you do everything from mm. the catering to the you know to 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 other parts um you know i think you're doing some things in the ice skating world you have mm-hmm. you know bars you can hire and you know art exhibition etc right so that's sort of the world you're in right it's always it's an event world right something is happening and someone needs a temporary or even like guess more permanent structures that's when guys like you guys woke up and and deliver it Would that be correct
1: yeah, we, exactly. We're in the event services businesses. Right. So we don't manage events. We don't organize events. We don't yeah. promote events. We design and build them. I like to call it, Marcus, my new wording is, I like to call it temporary event architecture. All right. So we are the temporary architecture business. We, uh, yeah, in many cases, we're a commodity rental company. So we have 160,000 seats in the world. So we're building, you know, seating solutions, at, at all the major sporting events, grandstands, temporary grandstands. So, for example, in London 2012, when we're doing the same in Tokyo, um, we're building the Beach Volleyball Stadium, which is a 15,000-seater temporary stadium with the, with the beach volleyball pitch. That's what we do. We then have the temporary structures, which, as you say, is the marquees, and today, marquees can be single deck, triple deck, uh, and in some cases, a triple deck with even a roof terrace. Yeah. Um, we've gone into temporary structures. We're now into modular buildings and decking systems. So because people, perhaps they don't want a tent overlooking their golf course. They want a, a very cool glass box overlooking the course. So we've we've sort of branched out into modular buildings. And then we do the interiors. So we design all the hospitality experiences we provide the furniture. Uh, we fit it out. We do the air conditioning if required. Um, you, you provide and the people too. Or are you you're like the? Who, the we provide. We, no. We don't do the catering. We don't do the security. So what we do is we do all the furniture. We do the tabletop. So we do the glass, the the cutlery, the linen, and for the caterers. And then we hand it over. So what we do is we hand over Wimbledon uh, on the day of the cha- or day before the championships. We enjoy it. Okay, and then after the championships, they give us the keys back and we remove it all in a sustainable way. Um, And and that's what we have been doing for many years. And and that's the business that I've extended in the last 12 years uh, from a standing start across the Middle East and Asia. And and, and now, obviously, you know, our big new market being uh, Saudi Arabia.
0: So let's uh, let let's dive into you know you just said 2019 was a big year uh, especially for your region yeah. right in uh, Saudi of course as uh, you know uh, is growing like crazy in in many areas uh, you know F1 is now going there as well uh, as I guess the third race in the region uh, but then COVID hit you know and it means you know, we all know events pretty much stopped all around the world. And even the ones which did happen, it was, there was no spectators, which is partly what you guys are building too, right? You're building the hospitality and where people are supposed to be sitting and eating and and spending a lot of money on. So just talk us through for what happened here now, let's call it the last year plus um, since this happened, you know, how did you guys were able to react to it, um, you know, with 1200 people around the world and of course, you know, some fairly significant um sunk costs, right? That equipment, and that all those things are mm. sitting there, right? And if they if they're not being used, uh, you know, I'm sure there's you know also a cost always which incurred. So, you know, talk us mm. through this from your perspective of you know how to, how COVID has affected the business and and how you were able to deal with it.
1: Yeah, so 2019, as you rightly say, was a hugely successful year for us, particularly in this part of the world in the Middle East, because we've come off the back of the Anthony Joshua. A Ruiz mm. fight that yeah, we built yeah, that in, in Riyadh, which was absolutely huge and a global event, uh, and on the back of that, that was in November, we cut, we we came off that hugely successful year. We started to to build the, uh, the the what we call the the European Tour Desert Swing with the Abu Dhabi Golf Championships and Desert Classic and Saudi during the time that COVID was was already affecting our Asian business. And it was going to be it was it was very clear that our business was going to be decimated. um and you know as they say, we events were the first to go, and generally speaking are the last to come back, sadly. And you know we we had to pivot uh, effectively. We had to pivot our business away from being reliant on events which were cancelled and postponed immediately, yeah. to where could we use our equipment? you know what what could we use our structures? For what we we couldn't use our seating really, but where could we use our our structures? Where could we use our ice uh, boxes that we had in the UK? You know, where, what could we do? And so we pivoted into that non-event world and and got stuck into uh, supporting the medical uh, profession in building uh, screening centres, temporary mm-hmm. hospitals, sadly temporary morgues. You know, across the world, uh, the, our US business has had huge success over there. Uh, We were able, the same in the UK and and the same in the Middle East. So we actually, in the Middle East, we actually picked up the biggest contractor in a long time in in April 2020 when we were commissioned to build a temporary medical holding facility uh, in Dubai. Mm. Um, And we had to build it in a month. And, And they could only use tents. And so we had to build it. We had to fit it out and basically uh, create 300 hospital bedrooms uh and I then had we had no a couple of ready. calls on that one <laughs> we did because i was short of hospital beds and i was that's doing right. things that i sure. you know there was a huge run on hospital beds and, and i think you were in the mask business at the time or something um and we were looking for hospital beds we actually managed to get them in the end but it was a it was a massive uh, it was a massive challenge and that's basically what we had to do as a business we pivoted yeah. um we, we also too, anyway. as a Yes, we also as a business were we did a rights issue. Uh, very in the very early very early April we decided to go out to our shareholders. We knew that uh, this was going to go on for a while. We knew that we needed to to put our company on on a good financial footing. Right. And and at the time I had managed to to bring in um a Saudi family office who were very keen to support us in Saudi, but more importantly they were very keen on the on the arena brand globally and, and the, what we do at Goodwood and, you know, what we, what we do in London. And, and, um, you know, there's nothing better than seeing our, our furniture business well-dressed tables and seeing them deliver to Buckingham Palace. You know, we had a very, we have a very good brand and this Saudi family were very keen to, to invest and support us. And, uh, so we did a rights issue, which they very, uh, they kindly underwrote and, and we raised uh, a substantial amount of money to have there to, to ensure if we if we needed if we needed support you know further down the road during COVID that we had enough resources to be able to trade through it and and that was a big uh, we were the, one of the very few companies that were able to successfully to get a rights issue uh, out of the way you know and uh, you know in early in early April um, and That's just true. before the COVID and so that was successful for us on AIM and then we pivoted as I said and, and the US and the UK and ourselves we picked up some some great work and we've obviously you know, taking advantage of some of the uh, the, the great support schemes, particularly yeah, the UK no, government.
0: Great to hear so, that. I and, have and, and, and two two points here to it. One is, um, um, you mentioned sort of that that was actually just before all this happened, I think you were in the process of trying to buy out or or, or take over the business or take it back private again. Yes, um, indeed. Was, was that with the same Saudi
1: group or with the, or different people? Yeah, 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 absolutely. No, absolutely right. So, you know we, we hadn't had a particularly successful ride on aim at the time uh, you know hmm. 19 it wasn't really you know our value wasn't really reflective in in what we were delivering and, and the group ceo uh, and, and myself came together to make an attempt to take uh, the business private right. uh and full support of, of a private equity a company out of the us so I it was my last trip before COVID to new york and, and my our friends in saudi arabia this, this family office they came together so we had two excellent partners. We put in a bid. It was accepted. It was a generous bid. Uh, this is all in the public domain. You can read about it. And uh, we were, we'd were we completed the due diligence. We were two weeks away from signing, uh, doing the deal and, and dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And we decided at that stage, with COVID looming, that this would not be the right thing to do. We needed to, to protect the business moving forward. Buying uh, Buying a company out was not the right use of funds. So we we called off the the management buyout as it was right. the unfortunately the Americans couldn't support the rights issue because they were private equity and that didn't fit their investment mandate or criteria. Uh, but the Saudis were very keen to still invest and become shareholders. Thank God that they did. They came in. Uh, we did as I said. We that led to a very successful you know rights issue for our business to, and it's you know put us on a great footing. And and the rest is history. We've come. We're trading through COVID. It's now twelve months. We've pivoted the business. We've minimising our cash burn wherever possible, and we're we're delighted with Boris Johnson's roadmap to to bring events back. And we're hopeful that this year that you know the likes of Wimbledon will perhaps not be at a full capacity, but perhaps a thirty uh, percent capacity, and they open the same. And we're looking forward to not a normal UK summer of events, but you know certainly. Uh, a lot more normal you, than it was seeing, last year.
0: You're seeing a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel here, which is actually a yeah. bit of, my question is, you know, the space you in, I'm sure you guys are following this very closely, you know, how events are coming back. And, you know, again, you mentioned, I think you guys had won some contracts in, in Tokyo as well. Uh, now, you know, recently they made an announcement that very, un, you know, most likely you will not have foreign or international uh, fans there, right? It may really focus just on, I guess, domestic the domestic fans or domestic uh, spectators, uh, again, all those things do, of course, affect the event business and therefore what they need and how many you know seats and things they need. Uh, what is it really? What you see happening? Um, let's take this year for the rest of this year and then going into two twenty two here, uh, which again is a big sports year, right? With uh, you know Winter yeah. Olympics and you have uh, you know of course the World Cup in in Qatar you where where, how is what is your best prediction um standing where you are and seeing what you see
1: well i think 2021 for our industry is probably going to be a transitional year you know i i think you know with the vaccine program being rolled out you know successfully certainly in the uk and pretty aggressively in the middle east i i do feel that you know there will be events coming back so I, it is a transitional year it's not going to be back to where it was in 2019 mm. we've we've taken the opportunity to reset our business uh, to look at areas where you know where where perhaps we were we shouldn't be and we've taken decisions to to take se- you know certain parts of our business away and and, and we've brought in you know new new opportunities like the modular stuff they're trying to to go to come away from being totally reliant on events and pivot our business into into non events mm-hmm. um and and that sort of takes out the seasonality of events mm-hmm. um so we we believe i believe that this year will be transitional i think as we go into 22 23 i'm i'm confident with the commonwealth games in birmingham in 22 obviously that you mentioned the fifa world cup uh, next year i'm i'm confident that we the 22 23 will hopefully i mean our focus is to bring it back to where it was in 2019 and then from 2023 to 4 you know to start to start growing the business again but i think it's it's a two year to come back to where we were in 19 and we've we, we've already started and, and and that's the sort of for me the light at the end of the tunnel in that respect
0: interesting uh, are you, uh, let, let's talk about, about uh, the region uh, as a whole here maybe as a sort of last uh, 10 minutes rounding up uh, our uh, interesting discussion we had um you know East is you know you've been there now as we said earlier almost 3 decades and mm. you've seen it grow from you know no one no f1 race to three races now and and you know yeah. biggest the biggest sporting events on in the world coming including the football world cup um, you know, major boxing events, WWE has a deal in Saudi as well, where they bring one of their pay-per-views there. So, I mean, yeah. you, you name it, you know, you know, big golf tournaments and tennis tournaments are rocking up there. So where, what is it? What is it what you believe, um, is, uh, you know, a, maybe which are the countries driving it and Saudi is the obvious, um, but you know, maybe there's others you see or, or looking at that as well. Um you know and, and where do you see this this going? Is it again just something which is there because right now it's sort of the flavor of the the year of the months kind of thing and or is there really you know genuine belief that um you know they want to build something long term there um you know especially if you take football in Qatar now as an example are you guys in, involved with Qatar do you doing some overlay or other things there or
1: we're, certainly, we're setting up in Qatar. We found a partner, and we're, we're going to be bidding for some, some stuff there, some right. overlay stuff there. Yeah, but but going back to your point, yeah, very interesting. I mean, events has really been, you know, over the years that I've been here, has been the driver of, of the economies, starting off in Dubai, mm. um, where, you know, when I first came here, Dubai was the event capital, and, and, and events, not just sports events, but, you know, cultural events, right. exhibitions, you Know it was a massive driver uh, right. of, the, of the local economy. I had the
0: expo, um, right? It wasn't that long
1: ago? The, the, the expo starts on October the 1st this year. This is the culmination for Dubai. You know, they, they brought the biggest event in the world here, right? Um, and over and, and then it started to be driven, certainly in the late 2000s, you know, and, and in the last 10 years, very much by Abu Dhabi. And Abu Dhabi, with when His Highness, you know, Sheikh Zayed passed away, and then you and, and his sons started to take control, and, and they want they all. Also followed an event strategy uh, to grow their to grow tourism and to grow visitors. And again, you know they, they built some major uh, attractions in Abu Dhabi like the Louvre um, and and then obviously the Formula One track on Yas Island. Yeah. Um, the Ferrari, they, they, uh, you know, theme the park. Ferrari World, yeah. the Three park, all this, Warner Brothers. So. Abu Dhabi um, has been a big driver for us uh, in the events industry over the last 10 years and invested a lot of money. Um, and, you know, we've had UFC there, as you know, they've been they've right. invested in UFC. They, yes. they, they've invested in a, in a Europe, you know, a Tour de France team that won it this year, right. etc. So Abu Dhabi has been very much the driver mm. letting and, and Dubai sort of, you know, settled off. And then in the last couple of years, uh, it's all been about the vision of the the new, you know, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia and the, yeah. and the Saudi 2030 vision. Which again, a large part of that is is driven by by events, um, uh, and uh, not just real estate, but by events. And and you've got some, you know, you've got the Ministry of Sport there that's that's handling the. Um, uh, the sporting events you've got the general entertainment authority that's handling all the the cultural uh, and musical side and you know that is where uh, the event industry is is really focused on now mm-hmm. and 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 I, that's going to continue for me that's going to be con- continue to drive our industry certainly for the next 5 years uh, the UAE is perhaps more of a mature market now mm-hmm. you know it's an easy you know it's a good place to do business people like to live here it's got a good event infrastructure. We've got two world class, you know, O2 type facilities here. We've got the Coca Cola Arena in Dubai, which is an which is a twenty thousand seater indoor arena. We, they've just opened the Etihad one in Abu Dhabi, which is the same size. You know, we're very spoiled here with the infrastructure for events. Yeah. is a different landscape. They've got nothing. Everything is temporary. So for us you that's, know the boxing that's, stadium it's a good thing but- it's great <laughs> it's and the first the biggest event they're going to host this year is the f1 in Jeddah on the streets yep. so at the first street race in this part of the world which they'll host for i think three years before it goes to a, a permanent circuit in uh, near riyadh so that's been launched december's the race day and um the event industry, certainly people like myself, were very focused on being part and supporting that event. Mm. You know, we now have uh, set up in, in Saudi Arabia. We have a good partner, as I highlighted. Mm. Um, it's very important if you're going to do business in Saudi Arabia that you're actually established and living and working out of Saudi Arabia. You know, doing bis- trying to, to service events or to any business from outside of the kingdom – You need to you need to have a presence, physical presence on the ground in Saudi Arabia. And on the sporting side, you know, arena has been very, very fortunate. You know, the first was the golf, the European tour, Saudi international, which we've been building now for the last few years. Mm. Uh, And Saudi golf is making a big investment in golf. They've just launched this Aramco ladies team championships across the world. Um, which is launching this year. So there's a lot of investment into golf as a sport. Yeah. Uh, tennis, they're certainly very keen on. Football has always been the main, the main sport there. Boxing, yeah. um, and now and now Formula One. They have Formula E as well.
0: Hmm. That's interesting, and I like the word you. And you mentioned it a couple of times, and it really has a nice uh, uh, sort of memory for me. There. Um, I had an office in Dubai in. I can't remember, 2008 or 9, in that sort of ballpark, I think. Uh, and we lasted about a year. Uh, and the, the reason we went in, it was the obvious, right? Um, at that time, again, the, the region was booming. Um, we were already had offices across pretty much most of the rest of Asia. So Middle East was an obvious to also you know, stick all our nose in there. Um, and, as I, and the reason why we pulled out within a year was two things. One is we were coming in with a particular event, and, and that just didn't work, but we did not have the local partners. Um, you know we came in as someone who knew the business we we knew our stuff uh, you know we were bringing in uh, clearly clever guys who had a good team of people there um, but we had absolutely no local relationships right you know we had no one who was really supporting us and 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 open helping us opening doors to us for us so to me, that was clear. That would take way too long, too long, and uh, and therefore I pulled the plug on it very quickly. It was probably the the, the shortest lived office we ever had anywhere in the world. Only my patience is a bit longer for for before things mm-hmm. you know come around. Now you mentioned that a few times too, and you've been there for thirty years, right? So you could argue, you know, you were actually on the ground, right? I was having that office running it uh, from from here in from our part of the world here in Southeast Asia. Um, you know how how important is that in you know not just for what you're doing yourself but in, in in general like you know having that local relationship and bringing in those that those local the, the people with the local expertise right let's call them that
1: yeah uh, it is very important i mean when we we've set up in saudi now we we are employing saudi nationals and and they they're great people well educated well spoken uh, you know you don't have necessarily have to speak arabic everybody speaks english perfectly it's important to have arabic speakers on board of you know it's that's normal but you know it's important to you know you to be an expat business is is dated now you need to you, you need to be very much a you know a local business yeah. you know you might have an international footprint you might have an international standards that you bring um but you you have to be local and um and if you don't have that, uh, you're at a disadvantage. I'm not saying you won't be awarded projects or you won't win work, but you know you are certainly at a disadvantage if you're trying to move in and out of, of countries uh, and not set up a proper uh, or invest in a proper presence. Do care. you
0: have local partners in terms of an equity as well? Is that required in the region? Because in some countries no. here in, in Asia, you, you can't really own 100% of the business. Um, or that's not No, that's region. changed.
1: That's, that used to be the rules here, but you can own 100% of your company in the UAE. You can do exactly the same in Saudi. So we, okay. we own 100% of our company in the UAE. We own 100% of our company in, in Saudi. Our partners are strategic partners. So our our Saudi family office, Tashil, are investors in the holding company in the UK. Right. They're not on, They're not our partners in Saudi uh, directly, but they are indirectly because they are shareholders in the holding company. Right. And the same in the UAE. The rules and, you know, the governments here have opened up and are allowing people to come in and set up their own businesses and own it a hundred percent.
0: And that that's sort of the you would argue that's at the same across most of the most parts of the region, I guess, Would right? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. yeah cool. Look, Paul, well, uh, that's been a really good uh, you know, a bit more than an hour here we already um discovering mm-hmm. your background and, and Amazing stories about how motorsports in the Middle East started, and, and how you were a big part of that uh, was the Dubai Autodome, of course, and and other deals there from Emirates, etc. And then, of course, getting into the world of uh, arena here, uh, which you know continues to grow, even though. And, and it's great to see, to hear your your honest. Uh, feedback on that, how you know it was impacted, uh, and I'm sure I can imagine. I have some other friends in there who are very heavy in the events business as well mm-hmm. in other parts of the world, and it's brutal. I'm sure uh, dealing mm-hmm. with uh, you know because you, you're not just dealing with a business; it's a people's business. right? at the end of the day, you're dealing with you know people who the employees and everyone else who you know gets their paycheck there. So uh, it's it's tough. So I, I can only uh, congratulate you for how you guys managed to get through it and. The pivoting you were talking about, um, you know, all the best for the next, as you rightly said, another year or two. I'm sure before things maybe yeah. are really back to normal. Um, it isn't quite over yet, as we all know. Things no. always kind no. of seem to be coming back a bit. You know what you hear right now in Europe again. So, ah, it, it's not it's not fun, but uh, it, it was fun to have a you know a more general conversation, not just COVID discussions here with you. Uh, so, thank you yeah. for your time. And uh, I'm sure, again, we'll catch up somewhere again soon, maybe in Saudi for the F1 race or somewhere in Abu Dhabi or Dubai. And uh, have a good one there.
1: Thank you, Marcus. I'm sure we'll see each other at some Formula 1 race. I know we're both fans. Um, it's been great to chat with you, and, and thank you for inviting me to join.
0: Yeah, no, no, I enjoyed it. Uh, we'll talk again soon, buddy. Take care. Cheers.